As you've already heard, uh, we're going to look in a few minutes in some greater detail at a passage from 1 Thessalonians. Before we do that, I'm going to read two passages today. The first one is from the book of Acts, starting in chapter 16 at verse 35, and you can find that if you're using one of the Bibles uh, from the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 1,578. So Acts 16, starting at verse 35. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Now we're going to read from the first letter to the Thessalonians, um, chapter 2, and that is on page 1,681. One Thessalonians, chapter 2. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know, we never used flattery 
nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Thanks, Ali. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it does your work in our lives, so we pray that you might do that this day. Amen. Can I ask you please to take out the leaflet that you were given as you came in? If you open up to the inside, you'll see there's a reasonably detailed outline of what I'm going to cover. The whole of 1 Thessalonians 2 has been reprinted in there, so that'll save you having to juggle the Bible open in front of you. You'll see there's a blank that you have to fill in at one point, so if you grab a pen from in front of you, that will be useful. If we have time, there's a discussion question as well. We'll see how we go. Uh, well, in my life, I've been fortunate to go on lots of amazing mission trips. Uh, I'm not going to bore you with all the details about every single one of them, but each of them involved lots of planning, preparing, and praying. Uh, each of them had eager anticipation, unexpected challenges, and the joy of standing side by side with others, proclaiming the word of life. And uh, even though things never go fully to plan... There's always been the thrill of seeing people draw nearer to Christ, even turn to Christ and become Christians. And then there's Paul's mission trip to Thessalonica, which, to be honest, I've said there on the handout, it feels like the least successful mission trip ever. Uh, you heard the story, it was told in Acts 17 and then a bit more in 1 Thessalonians 2. The summary version, it starts badly, it goes badly and it ends badly. Okay, it starts badly... Well, you heard how it started. Paul and Silas have just come from Philippi where they'd been stripped, flogged, thrown into jail for preaching the gospel and deported from the city. They get to Thessalonica and it goes pretty badly there because, well, there's some interest from the Thessalonians. There's a few converts. A new church is established. But after just three weeks, opposition reaches such a crescendo that there's a flash mob, there's a riot in the city... And when they can't find Paul, I wonder if he's in hiding, 
they arrest some of the New Thessalonian converts and charge them with insurrection. And so it all ends pretty badly because later that night, under the cover of darkness, Paul and Silas are forced to flee to Berea with their tails between their legs. Is this the least successful mission trip ever? Well, look at what Paul says. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. The first verse there, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. You know that our visit to you was not without results. Uh, it's a serious question, and so it calls for a serious response. What Paul says up front to them is that their visit to Thessalonica, it was not without results. Uh, that phrase there, not without results, it could be translated as it's not futile or not vain or not useless. It's exactly the same phrase that's used in 1 Corinthians 15 to describe what it would mean if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Our whole faith, our whole preaching would be useless. So why not? Why does Paul say that his visit was not without results? Well, in chapter 2, what Paul does is he gives two main reasons, two defences of his conduct amongst them. The first is how he lived himself amongst the Thessalonians, and then the second is how God was at work amongst the Thessalonians through Paul. Point two then, how Paul lived amongst the Thessalonians. Pick it up with me in verses 2 through 6. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 2 through 6. Printed there on the left-hand side. We'd previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make doesn't spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority, instead we were like young children among you. Now, even though Paul has arrived in Thessalonica under a bit of a cloud, given his hasty departure from Philippi, at verse 2, we'd previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi. Nevertheless, he insists, verse 2, with the help of God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. That is, even the events in Philippi aren't going to stop Paul from trying to convert the Thessalonians. But it seems that after Paul left Thessalonica, his opponents started up a bit of a smear campaign against him. Now you recall back in Acts 17, it said that the Jews in the synagogue, they were jealous of his popularity. And so I imagine that what took place after Paul left was that the whispers began, the innuendo. And of course, nothing was explicitly defamatory, but I'm pretty sure that there would have been anonymous rumours or slurs or mutterings about that Paul. You know, Paul, he was just a blow-in who didn't stick around when things got tough. Or that Paul, he's just a bit of a charlatan, quite frankly. He cut corners in a bid to get results, especially after the debacle back in Philippi. And the reason why I suspect that was probably happening is because look at how Paul has to defend himself. Verse 3, For the appeal we make doesn't spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. 
And yet, Paul is quite confident that the Thessalonian Christians had no issue with his conduct. Notice what he says in verse 5. Verse 5, You know we never used flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up our greed. That's actually a key part of Paul's defence throughout the whole of chapter 2. He keeps reminding the Thessalonians of what they already know about Paul and his behaviour, what they know for certain. In fact, if you look back in verse 1, you know, brothers and sisters. And likewise, again, in verse 11, you know. In verse 9, he'll talk about you remember, or verse 10, you are witnesses of his behaviour and his conduct. But actually, Paul's primary defence is that, verse 5, verse 5, God is his witness. God is his witness. So even though the Thessalonians knew what he was like, it's actually God who sees. Now, I want to say that having God as your witness, that's one of those things that could go either way. Having God as your witness, that could either be mildly terrifying or it could be wonderfully reassuring. And in Paul's case, it's a huge comfort. Look at what he said in verse 4. Verse 4. We speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. See, Paul knows that what God thinks of him, that matters more than anything his opponents in Philippi or Thessalonica might say. Well, a couple of comments here. Uh, you'll see there's some notes there on your handout. Firstly, when Paul says that he's approved by God, he literally says he has been tested by God who tests our hearts. It's been tested by God who tests our hearts. And again, although at one level that might sound a little bit terrifying, if you pass, it's a great relief. Because it's, God opinion, it's God's opinion that matters. God's opinion that counts. And to be told that you have his approval, well, quite frankly, it doesn't really matter what anyone else thinks. I want to say, of course, that worldly approval is nice. It's nice when you get it. And of course, all things being all, you'd rather have it than not. But all of us know just how all-consuming is the desire to gather likes or gain more followers on social media. Now, personally, won't surprise you here, I do not have a well-curated online presence. Although, can I say that if I did, then yes, I'd be a little bit hurt if people didn't follow me, if my own kids didn't follow me, for example, as they almost certainly wouldn't. Can I just say it? My mum probably would. Now, so thanks, mum. Happy Mother's Day. But my point is that if God gives his a tick of approval... I'd be okay if no one else did. That's why Paul can say, verse 4, he's not trying to please people. Or verse 6, he's not looking for praise from people. One of the reasons why this is so important, this is the second idea here, God's approval is not just to be entrusted with the gospel, it's to be entrusted with, verse 2, his gospel. Do you notice that? Verse 2. With the help of God, we tend to tell you his gospel. 
in the face of strong opposition. Can you hear the image? Can you see the image that's on view here? Paul is describing the highest level of certification by the highest authority imaginable, approved by God to be entrusted with his gospel. What an honour. What a privilege. Now, can you see, actually, that as a result, there can be no higher calling, no better motivation to properly conduct yourself? See, this is the reason why Paul has no need to resort to trickery, not if it's God's gospel he's proclaiming. This is the reason why Paul will never act out of impure motives, not if it's God who is his witness. It's why Paul can confidently say, verse 5, we never used flattery, nor did we use a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. It's terribly sad that unfortunately... Sometimes people in ministry do seek to profit financially by preying on the generosity of the flock. But even though Paul, Paul, the apostle, even though he could have pulled rank, uh, verse 6, did you notice? As apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Even though Paul could have pulled rank, still he'll never do so. Instead, he says that he and his companions, verse 7, behaved like young children among you. And we'll come back and tease out what that image looks like in just a moment. But before we do, let me just pause and ask the obvious question I think that comes from this. It's there on your handout. How do you respond to being told that God is your witness? How do you respond to being told God is your witness? Because it's a pretty sobering thought, isn't it? If God is your witness... What might you need to stop doing in private, pretending that he can't see? Do you know that the gift of the Holy Spirit is a guilty conscience at times? That's actually a sign of God's kindness, that he longs for you to be different. How do you respond to being told that God is your witness? It could be sobering, yet at the same time, can I say, it's also tremendously comforting. To know that God is our witness, who God sees everything, I think that's what enables us to persevere. To persevere when no one else sees your struggles. When no one else knows what's going on. It's the way, I think, in which we experience the wonderful relief of not being beholden to other people's opinions. Because not only are they never fully informed... Above all, it doesn't matter what they think, not if God has tested our hearts and given us his tick of approval. Well, at this point in the chapter, Paul is going to take this idea of how he lived amongst the Thessalonians and he's going to describe it using three powerful metaphors uh, that um, kind of sum up his behaviour amongst the Thessalonians. This is verses 7 through 12. Um, and in fact, he's going to use three images. They're all from the family. Uh, he's going to talk about young children, mothers and fathers. So pick it up with me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, down the bottom left-hand side of your handout. Instead, says Paul, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, 
we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We were night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, so is God, of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Okay, so three metaphors that Paul uses to describe how he lived amongst the Thessalonians. They all come from the family. Firstly, we were like young children among you, verse 7. Now, literally here when he says young children, he means babies or infants, uh, which, uh, now I know the images can be a little bit complicated, but babies or infants, I think it's meant to be the polar opposite of someone who asserts their authority from verse 6. Now, don't get me wrong, and I hear some smirks from some of the mums here, like Tabitha in particular. Uh, I know that young children, and newborns in particular, can be pretty demanding. Particularly baby, they cry when they don't get what they want. But really, they can't impose their will on others. And so Paul is reminding the Thessalonians of how undemanding, how unforceful he was amongst them which I think is particularly remarkable when we recall the opposition that he faced, both in Philippi and in Thessalonica. You know, when there's that kind of level of opposition, your stress, your anxiety goes up, it'd be tempting, I think, for Paul to be impatient or overbearing. But no, we were like young children amongst you, he says to the Thessalonians. Or take the next image. Uh, This is verses 7 through 10. Uh, There on your handout on the right-hand side. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Now, how appropriate, of course, that we get to this passage on Mother's Day. Uh, Paul's primary metaphor here is of a mother caring for her newborn child. What love and affection. What doting protection. There is nothing she wouldn't do, nothing she wouldn't give up for the sake of her brand new baby. So Paul can say in verse 8, because we loved you so much, we delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Isn't it interesting that Paul says that love means you share not just God's gospel, but you share your life as well. I take it that's because unbelievers don't just want to gain an understanding of who Jesus is in theory. They want to see what kind of difference Jesus makes in practice. And the best evidence for what Jesus might do in someone's life is what he's already done in the lives of believers whom they know. Or put it slightly differently, evangelism, it's not just about me telling you about Jesus. Evangelism is also, come and see how he's changed my life. Paul uses here, I think, this image of a nursing mother caring for her children, of being willing to share his entire life to show the depth of his love for for the Thessalonians. He shared every part of his life. And I take it that means that Paul... Well, he allowed them to get up close and personal. 
He shared with them the good and the bad, the ups and the downs. He shared with them the struggles and the celebrations. Even, I assume, I take it Paul shared of his own weaknesses, his own sins, his own insecurities and uncertainties. Because that's what genuine love and sharing looks like. It opens up to others and lets them see the real you so that they might see God at work in you. I want to say that uh, it is an extraordinary privilege as a pastor in this church to be involved in your life and you in mine. And in many ways, as I think about our church family, I would love it if I could share every part of my life with all of you. Yet, it's not particularly practical. What I do hope is that those I am fortunate to share with, uh, like the brother from our 6pm gathering, who, when I became senior pastor, we started meeting each month to pray and to share together, I hope that at least those who I do get to share with see that I'm never secretive. This is why I think Paul can remind the Thessalonians of how he stood shoulder to shoulder with them. You know, there are no airs and graces about Paul, no insisting, oh, you know, I'm too important for that, that's beneath me. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters... Interesting, isn't it? Another family image. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and our hardship, we worked night and day in order not to be a burden. Actually, that's something that we Australians, we really admire, don't we? We are anti-authoritarian, we are fiercely egalitarian, we want to see that our leaders, they don't think they're better than us, and Paul, clearly, he got down dirty with them. You notice that when it says, not be a burden, verse 9, it's actually the same, thing as what he, same words as back in verse 6, which are translated as, assert our authority. Because, interestingly, once again, I think, like his earlier insistence, Paul is at pains to say, we did not put on a mask to cover up greed. Paul wants to make sure there's not even a hint that he ever profited financially from ministry. And again... He can confidently say to both, say that both the Thessalonians and God are his witnesses. Verse 10. Verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Paul could say everyone knew that he was beyond reproach. So he's talked about how he's like a young child how he's like a nursing mother. The third and final image there, on the right-hand side of your handout, we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. Uh, Verse 12, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Nursing child, sorry, young child, nursing mother, father. Let me say that even if this has not been your experience of your relationship with your father, can I say we know what it should have been like? The best of dads, they, verse 12, 
encourage, comfort, and urge us to live lives worthy of God who calls us into his kingdom and glory. Isn't that an amazing picture of what fatherhood ought to be like? I think it's extraordinary. Actually, I was thinking about it this week, obviously, because, you know, I've got three teenage children. I thought about what they would say if I said, this is what I'm trying to do for them in their lives. Actually, I reckon they'd say in a deadpan voice that I reckon belies their great enthusiasm. They'd say, epic. (laughs) All three of those behaviours encourage, comfort and urge. They are called for from dads at times. As before, there's nothing forceful, nothing coercive, never anything demanding. And of course, I'm certainly not perfect at this. Again, my teenage children would affirm that. But Paul says, this is what I aspire to. And actually, this week, as I've thought about this passage, it struck me that this would be a great model for all of our relationships in our church family. This week, I found myself imagining what it would be like if all of us made this kind of pledge to be people who are encouraging, comforting and urging others to live lives worthy of God who called us into his kingdom and glory. So actually, that's the blank that I've got for you to fill in there. You don't have to, but you might like to, if you want to grab that pen. I wonder if you might pop your own name in there. To say, I, Jeff, use your own name of course, but I, I intend to encourage comfort and urge the members of my church family to live lives worthy of God who calls us into his kingdom and glory. And of course, if that's your resolution, if that's your commitment, then the natural question becomes, well, what does it mean to live that out? And uh, maybe for the sake of time, we won't have the discussion question, but perhaps afterwards in the yard, that would be a good thing for you to talk and share about. What would help you And what would hinder you as you try to live out this charge? Well, let me come then to the last part of the passage, point four. Paul is explaining why his visit to the Thessalonians was not without results. He's talked about how he acted amongst them. He's given these three extraordinary metaphors to describe his behaviour. But the last thing that he wants to do is to actually shift his focus away from how he conducted himself to what God was doing amongst them through Paul. And this is point four there on your hand, on the right-hand side, how God was at work amongst the Thessalonians. Pick it up with me in verse 13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. To come back to my opening question, was this the least successful mission trip ever? Well, according to Paul, 
the reason it was not without results, verse 13, is because God was at work amongst the Thessalonians. And specifically, God's Word was at work amongst them. Now, how do we grasp that? Well, I thought I'd draw a parallel at this point with an MRI, an MRI scan. You know, when you get an MRI scan, it's designed to show you what's going on beneath the surface, beyond outward appearances. That's what verse 13, I think, is doing here. Uh, Some of you know that uh, a few years ago, I tore my Achilles tendon. I was playing tennis. Um, It was one of those spur-of-the-moment things where, you know, like all of us, I've been inspired by watching Wimbledon and... um, Forgotten that I hadn't played in a decade. So, you know, I got out of the racket and I was playing away and all of a sudden I heard this loud bang and I collapsed on the ground. I thought, well, that's probably not so good. But I just hobbled around for a few days like, you know, most Australian men. Um, Eventually, I made my way uh, in to see a physio and um, truth be told, he wasn't so sure either what was going on. So he said, I need to go and get an MRI scan. Turns out that it's quite hard to arrange an MRI scan in the middle of footy season Uh, So eventually I went off to a sports medicine clinic and there, as part of the consultation, a GP saw me and she literally took one look at my leg and in 15 seconds said to me, you don't need an MRI scan, you've snapped your Achilles tendon. I can see what's going on. That's almost exactly what's taking place in verse 13. It's like an MRI scan. Paul is saying here's what was really going on when he was amongst them. God's word was at work in those who believe. And as an aside, can I say, that's why I'm always encouraging you in your personal daily devotional life. Because it seems to me that if you really want God to be at work in your life, if you want God to help you and guide you and strengthen you, dare I say, if you want to be encouraged comforted and urged to live a life worthy of God. This is how he does it. There is no other way. He works through his word. So the question for us is, how do you know for sure that God's word is at work in you? Well, actually, verses 14 through 16, the last part of this chapter, they actually give exactly the same reason that we saw in chapter 1. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. But what Paul says here is the evidence that God's word is at work in their lives is the way in which they stood firm under suffering. The way in which they stood firm despite being persecuted for following Jesus' example. That, according to Paul, that's the confirmation of God being at work in their lives. We saw that in chapter 1 and actually it's the same for his followers in every age. That's why we saw that encouragement there in verse 6 there on your handout. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Well, before I wrap up, let me just briefly address the question of whether in verses 14 through 16, Paul was anti-Semitic. Was Paul anti-Semitic? Because he has some pretty harsh things to say about the Jews and how they put Jesus to death. Uh, There's lots that could be said on this, but let me say this much. Uh, There is never any justification amongst Christians for anti-Semitism. There is never any justification for the kind of bigoted hatred which says the Jews are getting what they deserve because they put the Messiah to death. 
There's never any basis for that. I say that because the Bible is clear. If you and I had been there, we'd have done exactly the same. Now, don't forget, of course, that as Paul writes what he does, Paul himself is a Jew. In my mind, at least, that allows him to be a little more critical of his own countrymen. But perhaps here's the best thing to say. Even if Paul's narrative sits uncomfortably with us, it did happen. They did crucify Jesus. And by not airbrushing the past, what Paul is actually doing is reassuring the Thessalonians today, you are not outliers. You have not been forgotten by God. You belong to something bigger that he is doing in his world. I think what verses 14 through 16 are, they're a somber warning for their opponents, but they're also a great encouragement for the Thessalonians. Paul is saying no matter what happens, God sees what's going on. God is your witness. God takes notice. And God will act. Well, let me wrap it up. The question at the bottom right-hand side is the one with which I began. Is this the most unsuccessful mission trip ever? Paul's visit to Thessalonica that started badly, went badly and ended badly. Well, what I've tried to say today is that no, it wasn't. It wasn't without results. Because, remember the MRI, beneath the outward appearances, God was at work in them through his word. And if it's not too long a bow to draw, um, what I want to say today, we talked in family news before about two identical all-age AM gatherings when we go off-site. I get that that's a big change. And I get that that raises lots of questions and lots of complications, and it will be hard. But again, like with the MRI analogy, I hope you can see what's really going on with the proposal, even if it's not immediately apparent. It's a desire to try and create some of what 1 Thessalonians 2 describes in such amazing power of an intergenerational church family that loves each other deeply. And at heart, it's a desire to create more opportunities to proclaim the Word of God that works in people's lives so that the message of His Gospel might ring out and our faith might become known everywhere. Let me lead us in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you did amongst the Thessalonians through your servant Paul. We thank you that uh, your word was at work in those who believe, transforming them to be more and more like Christ. We ask you to do the same in our lives today, we pray that in so doing, many more might come to see of how the love of the Lord Jesus changes everything. And we pray it for his sake. Amen.